Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sundays, please visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Hello, River's Edge. Matt Deason here. Hope you all are doing well. We are officially one week into the coronavirus shutdown, and uh, what a week it's been. Uh, As we were heading into last Sunday, late last week, uh, the president decided to stop flights between the U.S. and Europe. And then, as you know, things began to escalate very quickly in terms of school closures and banning gatherings over 500 and then over 250. And then a Sunday approach, we thought, well, the risk of gathering at our size in our city is very low. We're well under 250. Uh, let's just go for it. And then two things happened. Uh, The first is that there were uh, rumors that gatherings might eventually be limited to 10, which officially happened a few days later. But also, we recognized that nearly every church in the city had already decided to cancel. And as a means of supporting local government uh, efforts and protecting the more vulnerable populations among us. And so while we realize that the risk is uh, low for us, we still want to do what we can to protect vulnerable populations, uh, which is very biblical, that the strong would lay down their rights in order to honor the weak, or in this case, those with weaker immune systems. And so we see a really strong biblical framework for that in the New Testament. But we also wanted to stand in solidarity with the rest of the church in supporting the local government, which is biblical as well. And so uh, last minute, last Saturday afternoon, we changed our course and canceled the gathering. And since then, the Washington state government has closed all restaurants and recreational facilities and banned gatherings over 10 people. Uh, Additionally, they've said that if you gather under 10 people uh, or 10 or less, you need to take precautions in terms of distancing and washing your hands, uh, avoiding unnecessary physical contact, all of that. So uh, a very bizarre and unprecedented moment in our country's history and one that's left most Americans feeling very isolated and lonely. And then you throw in the fact that most people just want to sit in their homes and watch the news, which is intentionally designed to put our uh, fear and anxiety uh, through the roof. And you end up with a really unnerving situation in America right now in which most people are isolated, uh, anxious, and not really sure uh, what to do, where to go, who to trust. Uh, The grocery stores are still open, but even when you go there, uh, it kind of feels like everyone's um, just kind of eyeing each other and trying to keep their distance. Uh, And you'll also notice that there's no toilet paper because apparently that was the thing to have in these scenarios. 
Uh, but I've just noticed this um, sort of unease that we have with one another, almost this uh, distrust of uh, kind of eyeing and looking each other up and down and, oh, do you look sick and stay away from me? And uh, there's just sort of a, a, a fear and anxiety that's settled in uh, over the culture. And uh, in, in addition to all that, uh, many people have lost their jobs, at least temporarily, and I think there's a lack of community, a lack of routine, the closure of almost everything uh, has thrown us into this weird space where most of us feel uh, very settled and disoriented, and some of us are, are unemployed to top it all off. Uh, and there is so much that the scriptures have to speak to us in this moment because the way of Jesus is the way of peace and calm and comfort in the spirit. Uh, not the crazy sort of doomsday anxiety that many are falling to. Uh, in fact, Jesus goes so far as to say, hey, don't worry about your life, uh, what you'll eat and drink, what you'll wear. Uh, don't worry about your very life itself, whether you'll live or whether you'll die, whether or not you'll get this uh, virus. Uh, no one by worrying can add a single hour to their life. Uh, and that frees us up to be wise, of course, but to be uh, a non-anxious presence, to be people of peace and calm and stability and blessing, uh, even when the world seems to be headed uh, the other way. So I think this is a really beautiful moment for us to be the people of Jesus in our city, a people of peace, a non-anxious presence, uh, a people who aren't consumed by worry. Uh, Paul says we weren't given a spirit that makes us a slave again to fear, uh, but a spirit by which we call Abba, Father. Um, God is our heavenly Father. We have his spirit inside of us that testifies to that fact. We have everything we need. Uh, and I think this is a great moment uh, to practice that lifestyle, to live out the way of Jesus, to be a non-anxious presence, uh, to flourish in this moment of uncertainty as businesses and schools are shutting down uh, and as many people are losing hours at work and feeling the pinch uh, economically. I think this is a great moment to reach out to friends and to neighbors, uh, to offer help and support, and uh, to gather limited numbers of people in your home and practice hospitality, uh, provide a place of peace and warmth and connection uh, in the midst of um, this, this odd uh, situation that we're in. Uh, it's also, I think, a great time to practice the spiritual disciplines that we've been covering in this series. We can't gather on Sunday in our official capacity, but we can do everything else we've been talking about in this series. We can practice His presence. We, we can uh, certainly practice silence and solitude. We can turn off the news, turn off our phones, practice the Sabbath once a week. You can practice simplicity with your stuff, with your schedule. This is a fantastic time to reassess the things in your home, the things on your calendar, your life rhythms, to kind of uh, cleanse a bit and to reset, uh, to focus on what matters most and remove all the other stuff uh, that detracts from it and often distracts us from what God is actually calling us to. Uh, we're basically being forced by the government to slow down and stop. 
And so this is a great moment for us to reset and to refocus, to reorient our lives uh, around uh, the practice of simplicity, uh, the practice of being filled with the Spirit and asking for more of the Spirit. Uh, this is in, in these weeks, we really have to make an active decision. Uh, will you feed the flesh? with all of its lust and apathy and fear? Or will you feed the Spirit? Uh, Ask God for more of His Spirit. Seek and knock and and ask of that. Worship in the Spirit and in truth. Experience the the fruit of the Spirit, which runs completely against the grain of kind of the the modern uh, tone of the the news cycles that we're watching. Uh, For those who are suffering, I think in this moment, uh, we should be practicing what it looks like to suffer well, uh, being honest with God and others uh, about your fears, your anxieties, whatever it is, crying out to him, leaning on him, trusting him for provision. Uh, More recently, in the last few weeks, we talked about the practices of community and reading scripture. And this is a, a key moment where we can uh, come together as missional communities to really be family, to support one another, to walk with one another, um, and, and to lean into biblical community. I think this is a great moment for us to, st- to uh, build a new habit of reading scripture daily and allowing God to shape you through it. Uh, this series is full of practices from start to finish that you can be engaging in right now that will help you experience the life of Jesus right where you're at. Uh, that life that we all want but rarely take hold of. What Jesus calls life that is truly life. And he says, hey, that's available to you and to me right here, right now, in the midst of, of this moment that we're going through. Uh, and the spiritual practices or the spiritual disciplines help us experience that. So I'd encourage you to, if you have the time, many of us do, uh, to listen or re-listen to those podcasts that we've done uh, already and to look back through your notes if you're a note taker and to really use these weeks to take hold of some new habits and practices to make this a rich and a fruitful time in your walk with Jesus, a meaningful time for serving others and advancing the kingdom, for connecting with people who don't know Jesus and inviting them into your home for a meal. This is a really unique moment in our nation's history, and we don't want to waste it just in isolation and anxiety and being consumed and shaped by uh, the news and all of the fear that goes along with that. Uh, But uh, all that being said, We are going to continue in our series this morning, uh, right in the midst of all of this uh, coronavirus craziness. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 15, uh, verse 11, and we'll pick up there in a moment. When Jesus calls us into discipleship, he calls us into an entirely new way of, of life. Uh, He never calls people simply to believe in him and go back to their everyday lives, but rather he calls people to believe in him as a starting point to a whole new way of being human. 
He calls us to take up his yoke or his way of life, which he says is actually an easy yoke. And he calls us to become more like him over time. So each week in this series, we've been unpacking a different spiritual habit or discipline that helps us take up this easy yoke, this new way of being human, and experience life the way that Jesus intended, becoming more like him over time. Uh, And this morning, we want to unpack the habit or practice of walking in grace. And I want to explore how this simple habit or mindset can come to shape our lives. So we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 15, uh, starting in verse 11, where Jesus is teaching the crowds through parables. This is what it said. It says, Jesus continued, here's a new parable that he's introducing. He says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate, which was a big offensive deal in their day. So he divided his property between them, between his two sons. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son in reckless abandon, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. 
But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for today. Um, We thank you for um, just the life that you've given us, that we are um, healthy and able to gather even in small groups this morning and to open up your word. God, I pray that it would shape us. I pray that in the power of the Spirit, uh, that you would open up our hearts, open up our minds to who you are and what it looks like to receive your grace and to walk in your grace and to be shaped by the beauty of your character day in and day out. Would you bless us, Lord, uh, as we gather in small groups throughout the city this morning? And would we really sense your presence uh, as we worship, as we pray, uh, and as we study the scriptures? In Jesus' name, amen. The parable of the lost son is one of the most stunning and well-known parables in all of scripture. And something about these words has resonated with the experience of millions or even billions of people. God has sought us out in our lostness and brokenness and sin. We were the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son of these parables whom God sought at a great price. And when most of us read this parable, we see our own stories and testimonies in these paragraphs. For the first few decades of my life, I was lost. I self-identified as an atheist. Uh, I ended up in all sorts of sin and brokenness. And then God radically saved me and called me to himself. He brought out uh, the fattened calf and a robe and a ring. He lavished his grace on me. And I was so acutely aware that I wasn't deserving. I probably even said these words at some point in my early days. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, or I'm not even worthy to be called your son in the first place. This is too much. It's undeserved. It doesn't make sense. And so, uh, for good reason, myself and probably most of us who are listening can identify with the younger son. Uh, who bought into kind of the lies and temptations of the world, was lost, and then was welcomed home and restored as a pure act of grace. Uh, Because each one of us is welcomed into the family of God in this way. God calls us in his grace. He calls us to the cross where we uh, receive this overwhelming grace and mercy. We see it uh, on display on the cross. And and when we say yes to Jesus, an incredible exchange takes place. All of our sin, our unrighteousness, our brokenness is laid on him. And we are left spotless, purified, cleansed, restored, set right. God says we are nothing short of a new creation after we place our faith in Jesus. Not because of what we've done, but because of God himself. Christ's righteousness, his perfect life, full of grace and beauty and amazing faith and and perfect decisions, all of that is credited to your account. 
you receive every spiritual blessing in Christ purely as an act of grace and not because of anything that you've done. This is how we uh, enter the family, as the lost coming home. But here's the catch. Many of the people listening to Jesus didn't identify with the younger son who was lost and then was found. They actually identified with the older son who was at home all along. In fact, he is speaking this parable uh, to, to a crowd, a mixed crowd, but to the Pharisees as well. And, and this is the part that I typically miss. The tax collectors, the prostitutes, maybe even some of the disciples uh, are all listening, and they might have seen themselves as the younger son. Uh, these types of people flocked to Jesus. They threw themselves at his feet, recognizing that it was only by God's amazing grace that they could enter the kingdom. But many of his listeners uh, don't fit into that category. Many of his listeners are law-observant Jews, uh, Pharisees, teachers of the law, the religiously devout, who are actually cast in the parable as the older brother. And this is, this is what he says, Jesus says in the parable. It says, when he, the older brother, came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked them. He's not even going in. He's calling the servant to him. And he asked them, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has come back safe and sound. The older brother, religiously devout, became angry and refused to go in. He won't even come into the party. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. In other words, through, through our language, we might say, hey, I've been a good moral person. I, I've been striving to follow your law. I've, I've been serving in the church and in the community. I've been tithing 10%. I've been following all of these rules. Yet, you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? He's saying, that's not fair. That's not just. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. In other words, you could have enjoyed anything I have at any time. It's all yours. The grace that I have for your younger brother is the same grace I have for you. Come and enjoy it. I'm guessing uh, that, that some of us this morning are resonating with the younger brother right now. And we need to hear God's heart for the younger brother. Maybe you're listening and you're not yet a follower of Jesus. Or maybe you're a new follower of Jesus and you're struggling to conceptualize what God actually thinks of you. Uh, maybe you've been following Jesus for a while, but you've wandered off and you feel stuck in sin or you feel alienated uh, from God. And if any of those describe you, 
You have to see God's heart for the younger brother who's welcomed back in all the way into the center by a sheer act of grace with open arms. God is kicking off his sandals and running down the dirt road to meet you and to welcome you back home. He's preparing a place for you. He's been waiting. But here's the part that we typically miss. Most of us who are listening, statistically speaking, are in greater danger of becoming the older brother than we are the younger. And the problem with the older brother is that he stopped walking in grace. The grace of the Father was always there. Everything in the house was always his. But he actually assumed over time that it wasn't. And he got about the business of following God's commands and slaving away for God's household. And he never stopped to enjoy so much as a goat with his friends. And whether we like it or not, this happens in the church all the time. How many of us, uh, myself included, were acutely aware of God's grace when he sought us out and adopted us into the family. But then almost immediately, we set that grace aside. How many of us started with amazing grace and slowly morphed into legalism? How many of us saw our adoption as a pure act of grace? And then we said, well, now that I'm in the family... There's a new standard. It was grace that saved me, but now it's up to me to continue on. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, or sorry, to the Galatians, he said, Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? In other words, having started in grace and having received God's spirit and a renewed heart purely by his grace, are you now trying to continue on in the flesh, just following rules and slaving away in God's household? How many of us sense God's amazing grace the day that we were saved, and now we think that the rest of our discipleship is about following rules? How many of us serve God or serve the church out of dull obligation in response to God's one-time act of grace in the past? How many of us had no problem embracing God's forgiveness for a lifetime of sin that happened before we met Jesus, but now we struggle to receive God's forgiveness over sin in our Christian lives? Without saying it, we function as if God's grace has dried up. It was radical back then, but now we're in the family and there's a new standard. Of course God has lavish grace for the lost, just not for his own kids. We should know better. We shouldn't be sinning anymore. And if we do, there's not much grace left for that. Only condemnation right? And what happens is that we set up a new written code for ourselves. Read the Bible every day, tithe 10%, 
Don't eat those things. Don't hang out with those people. Dress like this and not like that. Pray for such and such minutes or pray for an hour a day or whatever it is. Oh, and I can't forget, I should fast. Oh, and now we're in a new series on spiritual disciplines, so I have like 10 more laws I have to follow to make God love me. And all of a sudden, we slip into this place of trying to please God by following our own written code, and we've fallen from grace. You know that's what the scriptures mean when they talk about falling from grace? It's not about falling into sin. It's about falling into legalism. It means that you've stopped resting in God's grace and you've returned to a written code. And not only does this cut us off from enjoying the goodness of God, but we become plagued by a sense of inadequacy and unworthiness. And we say, if only, if only I could pray more or witness more or read my Bible more or tithe more or whatever it is, we are constantly trying to earn the love of the Father through our actions instead of receiving it as a free gift. We've stopped walking in grace. And notice how much this has warped the older brother's world. He won't even approach the house. He's bitter. He's upset. He hates his younger brother. And the fact that he's receiving such radical grace and he's failed to receive the same grace and walk in it. And God the Father is saying, hey, everything I have is yours. You don't have to earn this. You've got full rights to the fridge. Uh, you, you, you want a goat? Go pick out a goat. Wouldn't, wouldn't be my first choice, but, but he's saying, you want something in God? It's yours. His grace hasn't run out. It's as lavish and radical and abounding right here in this moment as it was on the day that you were saved. The gospel says that you are now deserving of God's pleasure, that he delights in you right here, right now, in whatever you're doing while you're podcasting. Before you lift a finger, you don't have to do a thing. God loves you freely, and he always will. You've been given righteousness freely from the throne of God. Your standing before God isn't based on any law. It's based on Jesus. When you placed your faith in him, you were mysteriously included with him, so that what's true of him is now true of you. Through Jesus, we gain access to God and this grace in which we now stand. You stand in a place of total acceptance and security. You are fully qualified, and you never need to be afraid of disqualification or removal. Your life in God is not based on your performance, it's based on your position. And because you have a righteous standing before God, you are wedded to Jesus, you are now free to reign in life. And your position, it doesn't change 
based on whether or not you followed some law or how much you serve or how much you tithe or even how much you sin. It doesn't change your position. The gospel says that you were born in Adam, that you were dead in your sin. There was nothing you could do, either good or bad, to remove yourself from Adam and to step into life in Christ. No amount of good deeds or religious activity could save you. You could spend all day, every day, doing good deeds for everyone and even serving in the local church. But if you don't have faith in Christ, it literally counts for nothing. It's, it's filthy rags. You were helpless to remove yourself from Adam. There was nothing you could do. But now, but now, You've been brought from death to life. You are now in Christ. And in the same way that there was nothing you could do to remove yourself from death and unrighteousness in Adam, there is now nothing you can do, no sin that you can engage in that could remove you from life in Christ. You are included in Christ. He is your righteousness and he is unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And your position before God is based on Him. You are completely and utterly accepted. There is nothing you can do to detract from His righteousness, and there is nothing you can do to add to His righteousness. You can't lose your position in God, and you can't improve your position. It doesn't change over time. And we have to delight in that grace, celebrate that grace, learn to walk in that grace. In fact, Jude chapter one says you are to keep yourself in the love of God. In other words, don't wander into uncertainty and condemnation and vulnerability when you could be enjoying the incredible privileges of his grace. Hear the words of the Father spoken over you. My son, my daughter, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. You don't have to earn it. You aren't under law or religious obligation. You're under grace. And when we walk in that grace, it shapes us. Everything we do, our giving, our serving, our tithing, our conversations, our identity, our love, should all be based out of this understanding of God's incredible and freely given grace. We don't do things to earn God's love. We receive God's love in its fullness, and then we go do things. We walk in his grace. This series, in some sense, is all about who we are becoming over time. Are we becoming more like Jesus over time or not? Have we stagnated in our discipleship or are we going somewhere? And every practice that we've covered is important, 
but nothing stagnates our discipleship like legalism or a false understanding of God's grace. And nothing sets us free and accelerates our discipleship like an accurate understanding of the radical grace of God. Jesus was powerfully shaped and informed by his accurate vision of the Father and the Father's grace. He knew that he was a son and that everything in the household belonged to him. He wasn't confused about the goodness or character of God, and that informed everything else that Jesus did. He walked in the grace of God beautifully, reflected it beautifully, even though he didn't need it quite like we do. And and this grace, it grips you. It shapes you, it empowers you, it changes you. On the days when I slip into being the older brother, I'm a bad husband and a bad father and a bad leader. And this happens to me sometimes. And when it does, I I, I can actually lose sight of God's grace to the point that I'm upset by God's grace. I want justice for the sin of others. I don't want them to be forgiven. That's not fair. That's not right. I don't want God to forgive them, and I don't want to forgive them either. God, how how could you do that? I mean, the fattened calf, are you serious? You know what sacrifices I've made to be a good and moral person and, and to follow your law? And now I'm supposed to forgive them and give grace to them? I've been slaving away in your household this whole time. What about me? And and all of a sudden, when I slip into that place, bitterness starts to set in. And before I know it, I'm outside the party. Watching from a distance. Refusing to receive God's lavish grace unable to celebrate when others receive it. All of a sudden, I start demanding that the younger brother should have to earn the love of the father. And by implication, that means I have to earn the love of the father too. So, I better get to work following commands so that I can avoid condemnation, serving like a slave in order to pay off debt or earn unique favor. I stop walking in grace. I slip into this vicious cycle of what I'd call the New Year's resolution, which means that you uh, set a new standard for yourself and then you try harder only to experience disappointment and despondency. It, it, It doesn't work. It doesn't get you anywhere. And there are days when clouds of condemnation are hanging over my head as I slip into this model that breeds bitterness and alienation. But then there are other days. Days when I make a point, in the words of Jude, to, to stay in the love of God to walk in his grace. And all of these, uh, and, and of all these spiritual habits and practices from this series, this is honestly the one that's the hardest for me because the grace of God is just too good to be true. And I tend to think 
very hard and it, with my with my logical mind, with my analytical mind. And sometimes it just doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense. I, I, I can't logic my way into it. It is by definition incomprehensible. But then I remind myself that whether I grasp this or not, whether I sense the favor of God or not, it's mine in Christ. How I feel doesn't change my standing. Happy, joyful, dejected, depressed, confused, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change my standing. How I perform doesn't change my standing. I killed it today. Oh, I bombed it today. I did things well today. Oh, I did things so poorly. I was marked by righteousness today. Oh, today all I can see is my sin. It doesn't matter. My standing with Christ is the same. And the more I walk in that and celebrate that and take hold of that, the more I become like Jesus. All of a sudden, I'm a better disciple a better husband, a better father, a better leader. My thoughts, my actions, my generosity, my serving, the love I have for others, it all begins to swell up out of this grace that God has put in me. And this changes for me almost day by day. I can see it. I can sense it. How do I know if I'm doing this? How do I know if I'm walking in grace? Well, Tuesday, I was enjoying the truth and extending grace to others. And then Wednesday, all of a sudden, I'm being a jerk. And I'm imposing all of this pressure and these standards on the people around me. And and all of a sudden, I start to judge the people around me. I'm slow to extend grace on those days. And, and that's really what it all comes down to. You want to know if you're walking in grace? Watch your heart the next time you have to forgive someone. Because the scriptures say that those who have been forgiven much, what? They love much. And those who have been forgiven little, who rest in self-righteousness, who live under law and serve out of dull religious obligation, will they love little? You want to know if you're walking in grace? Well, how good are you at extending grace to others? Because we can only pass on what we've received from heaven. How is forgiveness going for you? How much effort does it take to extend grace to others? Or how about this? What happens in your heart when someone asks you to give or to serve? Or what response does that evoke? Is it, is it a reluctant yes? Do you give or serve or forgive or extend grace out of dry religious duty? Is it an attempt on your part to earn God's love and his blessing? Are you living under the law? Or is it an expression of the love and blessing that you've already received, that you're currently receiving right here and right now? 
I love that so many of you serve at the church, but I also want you to serve for the right reasons. You're not attempting to earn more of God's love and blessing. You're not trying to pay God back for that one-time act of grace that he showed you on the day you were adopted in. You aren't paying God back for your salvation. You're walking in his grace, which is as full and abounding in this moment as it has ever been or will ever be. And when we walk in that, it shapes us. It changes our character. It connects us to the very life and righteousness that is already ours in Christ. We are free. God did not set out to purchase slaves for his project. He died to bring sons and daughters into the family. And once you're in the family, everything in the house is yours. He says, my son, my daughter, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. I'm going to pray for us this morning. And as I do, uh, I've just felt drawn to pray over the people that we're becoming. Because each one of us is becoming someone. We are each headed somewhere. We are becoming more like Jesus or less like Jesus over time. And I recently heard someone say, hey, think about the 80-year-olds that you know. They're usually either the nicest people in the world or the meanest people in the world. But they're, they're almost always one way or the other. There aren't many average 80-year-olds that you come across. There's a lot of average 18-year-olds. They don't differ that much one to the next. But over the course of a lifetime, we spread out into the people we are becoming. We tend to head one direction or another. And if we walk in grace, we become people of grace. We become more like God over time. And when we fail to walk in grace, we become something else entirely. So I'm going to pray, and then we can all go back to uh, doing whatever it is you do when you're forced into isolation. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your grace, Lord, which is the same right now as it was yesterday, as it will be tomorrow. We thank you, Lord, for uh, this radical act of salvation this, this, that's placed us into this position before you where we are completely restored, completely redeemed, completely your son and your daughter, completely set free under grace, um, com completely filled with your righteousness. And we just praise you, Lord, that we don't have to earn anything, that we don't have to fight for anything, that we, that we don't have to worry obsessively about our performance before you, but that because of your radical grace, we're actually set free. And God, I, I recognized even as I was um, preparing this teaching that this is something that's so central 
uh, to, to the gospel and, and our concept of, of salvation. And yet, it's so easy for us to miss. Lord, don't let us miss this. Don't let us miss your grace. Would you uh, breathe fresh life into us this morning? Would you wake us up to who you are and the radical grace that is ours in Jesus? Show us what it looks like, God, to rest in that grace, to walk in that grace, to live out of that grace. Save us, Lord, from our own rules, from our own strange ideas, from our own forms of legalism, And and would we be set free? You say, those who the Son has set free are free indeed. Would you let us taste that freedom, know that freedom? And and would that be the message that we carry into our city and into the nations? Would it be of this radical grace that sets us free? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.